0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast?
1: Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, You will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940, 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned the free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta.
2: Good evening, everybody. It's another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I am one of your hosts, Don Abernathy, and joining us from Texas for his second episode, it's our newly minted co-host. You heard him on the last episode, Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, what is going on, friend?
0: Oh, man, it's just awesome to be here. It's uh, it's hopefully this is the second of many podcasts that we get to do together, man.
2: Absolutely. For those listening at home, um, I I know where you work. I know the area in which you usually stomp around, but where exactly in Texas do you call home? Where do you hang your hat at the end of the day?
0: So if you looked at a map of Texas and you pointed right in the middle of it, that's about where I'm at. It's a little place of heaven. It's out called Burnett County, B-U-R-N-E-T. Uh, The heart of the hill country and the heart of Texas wine country, man. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of vineyards uh, around me here in this Highland Lakes region. Yeah, it is not at all what people think of Texas uh, (laughs) when I explain it to them.
2: He's surrounded by wine country, but he's probably – smoking a cigar and drinking some whiskey as we speak. Cause that's the benefit of doing a podcast from your garage. You can do whatever you want and no one's going to tell you otherwise, except for maybe the wife, but uh, everybody's <laughs> right. going to have their own little place to uh, do what they want. Right. That's right. So yes, we're a few days late, but Hey, you know, it is what it is. We all got COVID-19 going on. We all have lives going on. Um, we did miss D day, but that's why we opened the show with Eisenhower, giving his pre-invasion speech, Um, we're going to get into a little bit of D-Day stuff on this episode, but, um, we're going to kind of talk about stuff that maybe you're not aware of and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But before we get into all that stuff, let's get a little house cleaning out of the way like we usually do at the top of the show. This episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004, including domain uh, management, network rollout, servers, computer fix, everything, cameras. Anything technology-based, and they can help you. Even though you're not here in Southwest Florida, they can help you remotely as long as your internet works. Give them a call at 239-283-1120. They can log your computer, help you with all your issues as long as you're at the computer there to allow them to get in. They can help you with online backups, $0.07 a gig per month. That is super important right now with everybody working at home. People working at home means your networks are now susceptible to more viruses and particularly ransomware. That's the horrible malware that encrypts all of your data and they threaten you with um, basically ransom, that's why it's called ransomware, to unlock it to give you the encryption code. But if you have online backups, it'll help you in minimizing the hurt from that, as well as uh, antiviruses and other things. So give them a call, 239-283-1120, and they can help you out with all of your IT needs. And please, um, we haven't really talked about too much on this podcast, and I'm going to try to get Jeff on an episode of the Patreon Behind the Firewall, behind the Paywall podcast that we do. It's called the OG5 podcast. That is for the members who sign up for Patreon. I know Jeff's not super up to speed on what Patreon is, and if you guys aren't up to speed with it either, it's basically a way to promote, to support your favorite content p- provider, whether it's a podcast, a YouTube channel, whatever. You go there, there's usually three or four tiers. You sign up for one. For example, our cheapest one's a $1 dollar a month. It literally takes one dollar a month out of your bank account each month. Um, Then you get access to exclusive content, in our case, podcast um, stickers. We're rolling out the WTSP die-cut stickers. I just sent Jeff a bunch of them. If you sign up for Patreon, you get those for free. I'll basically hit you up. You Give me your address. Tell me what color you want. I'll make the stickers for you, especially... And mail them out to you. Like I said, you get access to um, exclusive content through podcasts. And we put exclusive video uh, content up there as well. So head head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that Patreon link. Sign up. Like I said, the cheapest one is a dollar a month. The second one is $3.50 a month. And the third tier, if you really like us, is $7.50 a month. After month two, you'll get a free t-shirt from that plan. But other than that, that's the best way. Actually, no, that is not the best way. That's the, the nicest way to really help us financially, but if you just want to help the podcast in general, uh, share us with your friends. Share us on Facebook. Uh, If you're listening through us through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, what have you, all those apps have a share button. So hit that share button and share us with your friends. And while we're on that topic, welcome the ratings are up. We have a whole bunch of new people listening to the last episode. I assume at least half of you are going to follow through and listen to this episode. So we want to welcome all the new listeners to the podcast and rewelcome all the old listeners, the longtime listeners, to the new formatted version of the WTSP World War Two based podcast. And before we jump headlong into it, Jeff, what's been going on with you lately, friend? Yeah,
0: man. Uh just uh just doing our thing down here. Um, you know, it's getting to be about you know, 150 degrees during the day here Ugh. in Texas. You know, it's a, uh, you know, we have four four seasons in Texas. You've got almost summer, summer, still summer, and then of course Christmas Day.
2: <laughs> there you go. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: but yeah, excited to be here, and and uh, really excited to hear that we've got some new listeners. I hope in some small way I have something to do with it. I'm trying to do my part in my technologically retarded ways of helping to try to share, uh, you know, what we do here at, at what's the scuttlebutt and in other ways. So, uh, hopefully we'll just continue to grow and, and thank you to everybody who's listening now for sure. Well, you know, I gotta um, say,
2: I, I feel a little bit sorry for your, your personal friends on Facebook because after you became admin, one of the jobs you have to do as an admin is to spam all your Facebook friends with likes to get them to come to set your eyes on the podcast. Cause as we spoke a little bit in the past, Um, Unless you pay Facebook money, they really don't share your post unless you're sharing a post that keeps people within the Facebook realm, i.e. a live video. So if we were to live video stream this, um, Facebook will share it with all your friends. But if you put a link like to WTSPWorldWar2.com, that would basically invite people to leave that Facebook realm. They really don't share it with people. And so, you know, all my friends list, they're tired of hearing about it. And, you know, people who come on the podcast will share it with their friends. But that's only a one-time thing. And so obviously when you help take over the Facebook page, you sent out a lot of invites and you start sharing things. And so that opened us up to a whole new realm and a whole bigger audience. And I'm not getting on that to beat up Facebook. I just, one, want to say welcome to your friends. But two, um, I kind of just dipped my toes into a whole no- another social media thing. And this isn't World War II based, but it will come back around quickly because I got some big news that just happened seriously like 10 minutes ago. Um, I stumbled across TikTok because my daughter has it. I signed up for a TikTok account uh, just to keep an eye on what she's doing. And what I discovered is TikTok is not money-hungry like Facebook, right? Um, For example, I got 135 followers today just off of a video of a dog that I posted at a pet store. That'll do it, man. That one video of a dog at at a pet (laughs) store that I posted today, I think right now has 5,223 likes and no time flat. And what I discovered by just posting goofy little videos, I'm actually getting views because the whole TikTok format, the way it works, is it's kinda of like Vine used to be. They're 30 second videos and you just scroll and play the next one, next one, next one. And so I'm actually getting um people viewing my content on there. Huh. But where that comes in cool is I came across a post today. Um there is a TikTok handle called Story Times with Papa Jake. And Papa Jake is a World War II vet. And what I usually do anytime I'm on social media, I've gotten guests off of Instagram. I've gotten guests off of uh, Twitter, all that. Um, I watched a few of these quick, short little videos with story time with Papa Jake. And I sent him a, uh, a message to whoever manages that page. I said, hey, my name's Don Abernathy. I host a World War II-based podcast called What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast. I would love to have an interview with Papa Jake and uh that's happening next week so not this episode the follow up episode um it's going to be kind of hard to work because he's in california it's going to be an early morning interview so probably what we will do is um we is Jeff and I will come on we'll do an abbreviated version of the podcast and then we'll include that long form interview at the end of the podcast so you'll still get the full long form interview but with Jeff being in Texas, me being in Florida, and this guy being in California, and all of us working with the exception of the the veteran, it would be next impossible really at that early in the morning to set up a, a three-way interview, at least at this point. Yeah. Jeff and I can talk about it more off the air, but not this episode the next episode. Hopefully it will be an episode with the segment that we often refer to as the, with those who were there, i.e. our interview with the vet. And if we can work it out so all three of us can do it simultaneously, that'll be great. If not, it'll just be a long-form interview at the end of the podcast. But so that's some good news. We are always thrilled. And that's one of the key components that we try to do with this podcast. But we have to be honest with ourselves. Due to the fact that the age of these guys and women, um, due to the fact that a lot of them who are still with us, aren't they don't have the mental faculties that it takes to do a long-form interview. And so it's getting harder and harder due to, well, life expectancy and health to find veterans to interview. And so whenever we see them, we have to just take our chance, set it up, interview them, edit it, and put it out there for you guys to enjoy. Because at the core of business, I love talking to reenactors. I love talking to authors, um, everybody else. But the more veterans the more, even, and more women who are alive at that time that we can interview, the better. And so that will always be our core um core goal. But with that core goal, we need your all's help. So if you guys know anybody who, you know, they may not have served, but they're alive during the time, they won't, they could talk about what's like on the home front. Um, like two years ago, I interviewed a gentleman who was six years old, living in Germany at the time. Great interview. Sadly, we did it at his house. A lot of marble floors, high echo. One of the first interviews I did. So, uh, the sound quality is kind of hard, but the story was worth it. And I really hope you guys go back and listen to it. Um, But so, yeah, it doesn't matter if they served, if they're just alive. We want to talk to anybody who was alive and has memories of that time. And as time progresses on, we'll probably start doing more interviews with Korean War veterans, etc. So with all that being said, if you know anybody who may be interested in doing an interview, whether it's World War II, uh, Korean or Vietnam, or anybody at that point, you know, I I made this. Jeff, you probably agree with this. I made the decision a while back, probably about two years ago. Someone asked me, do you only interview World War II vets? And my initial instinct was to say yes, but then I said no. I'll interview anybody. Anybody who served. Don't matter if it's Vietnam, Korean, Desert Storm, Operation—you know—Iraqi Freedom. Because to say no, I don't want to interview them because they didn't serve in World War II. That's kind of me saying, well, their battle, their—you know—their service wasn't as important as this person's. And that's kind of why we have World War II based in the in the in the slugline. Yes, we're a World War II based podcast, but if you guys listen to this long enough, you know I've interviewed Vietnam vets and Korean War vets, and so it's and obviously as time goes by, it'll it'll kind of progress into a military history podcast. But no, we're down to interview anybody. So if you know anybody who wants to be interviewed to get their story out there, send us an email at info at wtspworldwar2 com, and we'll get the long as you get to us the information to contact, we will do all the rest and get those interviews booked. But how do you feel about that? I mean, is that kind of the right way of looking at it? I don't want to say no I'm not interviewing you because your service wasn't as important as theirs
0: Yeah, no i think I think you you've got a great point there uh, I, the, the way I see this podcast and, and I, I hope our viewers feel the same way is um, we are not ever going to forget the greatest generation um, but as that generation is slipping by, uh, we need to make sure that future generations understand what the greatest generation was like when there is no more of them to interview, uh, to hear it firsthand. So as we bridge that gap between world war two and today, uh, through Korea, world war two veterans and and guys from, you know, my generation, um, it's going to help keep it relevant. Um, they're, they're not going to be able, I mean, none of us can really understand what it was like, uh, hitting, you know, Normandy, uh, 76 years ago now. Um, but I bet you there's some guys that were in Korea and Vietnam and, and better storm and, and my war, they go, well, you know, bullets snapping past your face. Don't sound any different. Doesn't matter what time of day or where you're at in the world or what time in history, you know, it, it's still relevant. And, um, so, yeah, no, I, I agree. I, uh, I think we need to make sure that World War II is is our main focus, but however we get to tell that story, um, you know, that that's important. And if you'll give me a few minutes here, I actually have something I'd it. like to share that is, that is extremely relevant, to, I feel, to something that happened today. Now, of course, this is podcast today, not when people are listening to this, I understand that, but uh, we lost a gem today from the greatest generation down. And I know exactly, I know you know what I'm talking about. Um, Ms. Vera Lynn, um, that that's a big, that's a big hole. Um, what a celebration of life. 100 a 103. She was. Correct. Right. 103. Yeah. I mean, wow. And the service to, well, to all the services, What she was the services, sweetheart, what she did for us in world war two, um. There it is.
2: Yeah, I didn't mean to distract her. I just yeah. actually happened to have it queued up because I was going to go into that story. So go ahead. I'm going to have her playing a little bit in the background. And-
0: perfect. Perfect. Well, I'll get right into the, the personal side of it. Uh, it was oh sometime fall of 2004, and it was when we were deployed. We you know, I, was in, I was in Baghdad from uh, March 04 March 05 with the first cavalry division. I was proud to be a part of that, in a very small part of that uh, beautiful division as a as a 19 Delta scout. And we had uh, a group come over from part of the USO. Uh, we had actor uh, Rob Schneider, actor-comedian, I guess you could say Rob Schneider. Um, we had, there was some Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and some other folks I didn't really recognize, but one that came over uh, was uh, country singer Neil McCoy. And everybody was just, you know, Following Rob Schneider around and asking him to say we
3: can do it, you know, I don't know
0: how many times? <laughs> you you know, can do the it Water all that long. <laughs> yeah, and there's Neil McCoy kind of standing off to the side. So I went up to him. You know, I grew up country music. You know, I knew Neil McCoy and introduced myself and just what a just such a great warm conversation with that man and and in an environment like that, it was very welcoming. You know, I really needed that and uh he really took a liking to me and he had a photographer with him and he said man he said, let's take some pictures together I went, oh okay you know he said I'll, I'll make sure you get a copy and and i did and and uh he had a he had a cameraman there and he said hey he said you know when you know when when are you coming home and i said man wait man we have no idea you know hopefully sometime next year you know we just don't know and he said well he invited me out. He was playing the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo in what would have been, I guess, March of 05. And he said, look, I'm doing a big video montage of everything over here. So he said, you know, talking to the camera, say who you are and where you're from, whatever. You know, and then he said, I'm going to play it at the concert. Ah, oh, okay, great. So we get through all that, and I have this hand come down on my shoulder, and it's, and it's, he says, may I have my picture taken with you? And I look up, and it's Wayne Newton.
2: Nice.
0: <laughs> And Wayne Newton says, "More people are taking pictures of you than me, and I'm Wayne Newton <laughs> and I said, "Well, okay, I guess we'll let you get in the picture. So I got a picture standing between Neil McCroy and Wayne Newton as part of the u s show over there and I didn't actually get to see the show, but we just we got to meet them a little bit before when they came in. We escorted them when they came in when they flew in on the shoppers uh from buy up from the from the Baghdad airport there but you know so I can tell you firsthand how important." a USO um, or the folks who put on USO shows really are for the troops. And I can just imagine thousands upon thousands of troops that got to listen to Vera Lynn, you know, with their own ears and see her with their own eyes. And that just, that must've just, that must've been something, man, you know? And and so that's a prime example, like what you were just saying, uh, where we can talk to guys from any war, any generation and tie it in, To the experience that was World War II. That's exactly what I think we're going to do here on this podcast.
2: Well, and you kind of hit it perfectly. Um, Bullets have the same sound, same feeling. And so if we have someone who's a veteran from a a different war than World War II, whether it's Vietnam, you know, a, a modern war, Korean, what have you, I think once you hear that particular person talking about their real, their personal interaction with what happened, their the real life experience, you can easily translate that into a different time period, a different uh, op- theater of operation, and you'll still get that feeling and help you realize it. it re- it'll, it'll definitely help you personalize the effect and help you be able to put yourself in the the spot of the person who served 76 years ago. And so, yeah. you know, like you said earlier, it, there's a reason why um, war veterans from all generations when they sit down they don't even have to talk about the nitty gritty parts of the war that they served in they can just sit there and talk about the best times you know the times you know we're doing r and r and what have you and both those vets regardless of the age gap they'll know what you know they'll fill in the blanks on all the all the bad stuff that you don't have to talk about because they they went through it themselves and it and it translates absolutely but here's the story, and I'm going to turn this up a little bit for those who aren't familiar. Once you hear the song, you'll you'll know exactly who she was. But uh, the, one of her bigger hits is When We'll Meet Again. But uh, from CNN, British singer Vera Lynn, whose sentimental ballads during World War II provided the soundtrack for the Allied war effort, has died at the wonderful, long-term, stunning age of 103. I added that part. According to the statement from uh, Dame Vera Lynn's Children's Charity on Thursday, Lynn, who lived in Ditchling, East Sussex, England, died Thursday morning surrounded by the close family. The statement posted on the charity's website said, Lynn's two most famous songs, one, which we just heard, we'll meet again, was released in 1939 at the start of the war. And the White Cliffs of Dover, recorded in 1942, created a patriotic image of the courage and uh, prolific Britain. Uh, that resonates with the people of the United Kingdom today. She was also the first English singer to make it to uh, number one in American Music Charts, Her daughter, Virginia Lewis-Jones, said in a statement, My mother first became involved with raising awareness of cerebral palsy in the 50s when there was very little understanding of the condition, and the children who suffered from motor learning difficulties were often referred to as the pejorative of spastic. Along with the celebrity chums, including David Jacobs and Wilford Pickle, she set out to change people's attitudes towards the disability to help children reach their full potential. There was no one else raising funds to help with that at the time, so it was her groundbreaking work to help raise money. Although my mother was closely associated with other charities, not least those supporting veterans, the Dame Vera Lynn Children's Charity always held a very special place in in her heart. The children love her as much as she loved them, and I am extremely proud of what she has accomplished in her life. She just, her music is synonymous. I mean, you can't listen to a single documentary or a show Without, uh, you know, hearing stories of her. And while we're on the topic of songs, you know, this is kind of something I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, And that is World War II based. uh, Modern songs have a World War II theme. And um, one of the other things I want to talk about today is some forgotten stories of D-Day. And one of them I want to talk about real quick is on this particular page I'm looking at. They refer to it as the giant sword of the beach. Quote, I wish you all the best of luck. What lies ahead, Brigadier Simon Shimmy Frazier, Lord Lavade of the 1st Special Service Brigade, told his men on the eve of D-Day. This will be the greatest military venture of all time. The commando brigade has an important role to play, and 100 years from now, our children's children will say, quote, they must have been giants of the day. Their mission was to race through a hail of gunfire along the eastern part of Sword Beach, and four miles inland to provide reinforcements for the 6th Airborne Division along the Khan Canal. Alongside Shimmy was a, his trusted piper, Private Bill Millen. Bagpipes were famously used to boost morale during World War I, but were easily targeted and many of them died. A policy was enacted to protect them from marching alongside troops in direct combat. Naturally, Shimmy convinced Millen to go against the policy when I told him, Ah, but that's the English War Office. You and I are both Scottish, and that doesn't apply. Um, the <laughs> prayer were the first ones to hit the sandy beaches. Immediately, Shimmy ordered Millons to play Highland Laddie. Quote, wounded men were a shock for me to see, said Private Millan. They expected to see doctors or some kind of medical help. Instead, they saw me in my kilt playing bagpipes. It was horrifying <laughs> as I felt so helpless, recalled Millen. He saw the chaos of the war as his own armored tank ran over wounded Allied soldiers, killing them as they laid wounded off the beaten road. A captured German sniper later remembered watching Millen's marching back and forth on the beachhead playing his pipes. They thought he had lost his mind and had gone mad amidst the combat throughout the beach, Millen told BBC. I didn't notice I was being shot at at the time. You were young, doing things you wouldn't dream of doing when you're older. The giant swords of the beach prevailed in marching to relieve the British Army units and secure the bridgehead. Shimmy responds to arriving at the rendezvous just after 1 p.m. with the apology of sorry for being a few minutes late. Now, here's an interesting song. This is by a group called The Real Mackenzies. And this is about the gentleman you just heard of. I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'll just let you hear the first line of the song. You'll get the idea. so the song basically goes through the exploits of Billy Millen as he's playing his bagpipes on the beaches of Normandy. And the chorus is basically, uh, the, my head was filled with music is actually the name of the song. And it's, it's kind of cool to hear modern day, you know, um, I don't know if you would call it Irish punk music, but uh, Irish rock music where they're, or Scottish rock music where they're actually talking about a little World War II history. And um, I first became aware of this song when I was uh, at the gym working out to the Dropkick Murphy soundtrack on Pandora, and it popped up. And I was listening, I was like, I think I know that story. And then there we go. It's about uh, Private Billy Millen, who was convinced to play the bagpipes, even though he didn't have to, without a weapon as he landed on Sword Beach during D-Day.
0: That's awesome, man. I mean, that's like, you know, there you go. That's. Today in, in a whole new you know genre to, to be able to do that in music to tell a story from World War II, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, the, the, the songs would be endless. I mean, when I think of, I, I thought you're going to go to like Johnny Cash's Ballad of Ira Hayes. <laughs> you know, uh, obviously that's not very modern, but yeah, to tell a story from World War II through music today, especially, is uh, that's powerful, man.
2: Well, here's one that's you're, we're all familiar with: Lincoln Park, right? Sure. And their keyboardist is a um, Japanese-American. He's of Japanese descent. He had a side project called Fort Minor. came out in 2010. And once again, I won't play this whole song, but this is a song about his grandparents called Kenji. And so this is a song he put out, Fort Minor, called Kenji. My father came from Japan in 1905.
0: He was 15 when he immigrated from japan he 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 worked until he was able to buy this to actually build a store let me tell you a story in the form of a dream i don't know why i have to tell it but i know what it means close your eyes just picture the scene as i paint it for you it was world war ii when this man named kenji woke up ken was not a soldier was just a man with a family who owned a store in L.A. That day he crawled out of bed like he always did, bacon and eggs with wife and kids. He lived on the second floor of a little storey ran. He moved to L.A. from Japan. They called him immigrant. In Japanese he'd say he was called Issei. That meant first generation in the United States. When everybody was afraid of the Germans, afraid of the Jacks, but most of all afraid of a homeland attack. And that morning when Ken went out on the doormat, his world went black. Cause right there. And, and so,
2: as you can guess, this is a story about his family going off to Japanese internment camps. Yeah. And at the end, you know, there's some real footage of one of his ancestors talking about when they got back to L.A., all their property was gone, which was a horrible, reoccurring thing that happened in the western states whenever you know, Japanese Americans were sent to internment camps if they owned farmland. Because a lot of them, there's a great book that um, I had been reading called um, Rising Sons. And that's sons as in sons and daughters, not Japanese. And it's actually talking about, as he heard you, as you heard him say in there, Issei, which is a term they used for um, uh, American-born Japanese descent. And it basically it talks about the internment camps and then the ones who go off and fight with the 445th Division and all that stuff. And one of the things, and I talked about on a, on a past podcast, what you don't really hear a lot about when you, when they talk about D-Day is how much, at the time, the Hawaiian population was made up predominantly of Japanese immigrants and uh, first generation born, you know, Japanese who were born, obviously Hawaii wasn't a state at the time, but it was a, a United States territory. And when you actually hear how the numbers, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, the how large the population was made up of Japanese um, immigrants and their descendants in that territory. Not that it justifies. Interestingly enough, not, I was going to say not that it justifies internment camp, which they didn't do in Hawaii. They did it in, on the western coast of California in the United States, and Mexico and Canada did the same. But when you heard the amount of uh, the populace of Japanese who lived in that territory for at the time, you you kind of see where they're a little, you know, a little concerned about potential for spies because the islands were made up of more Japanese, um, descendants than there were, you know, not born Caucasian or, you know, any other race at the time. So, um, it's just weird and interesting where you can get your history at some, sometimes and you stumble across things like that. And it's kind of cool to think in 2010, here's, you know, a descendant, not only is he a a huge rock star from being the piano player and, as you heard one of the hip hop singers for the band Lincoln Park, but the side project where he can tell the story of his grandfather and what happened to them during World War II.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's important to remember too, uh, cause you know, I think naturally when we think of Japanese internments, we think of, uh, the negative that happened, you know, losing, you know, what they had built and what they had, you know, scraped together as, as immigrants. Um, but I think it's also important to remember too, uh, just the safety aspect of it. I mean, as guys were, were rotating back or being hospitalized in, in Pearl Harbor, that were coming back from all these islands that nobody cared about, to be surrounded by by Japanese Americans, it's just a, it's just, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, um, whether they were uh, you know spies or not, uh, just for their safety. Um, you know, you definitely didn't want to have some drunk Marine fresh back from Guadalcanal on leaving mm-hmm. Pearl, it, you know, finds a couple of Japanese Americans in a dark alley and, and, you know, man, it, it could just, that, that could have been a whole lot worse. So while internment camps were probably not, you know, the most desired place to live, I think it's important to remember too, that it was a, it was a twofold issue that we were trying to deal with, you know?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, like you said, you got somebody who, and you kind of see it briefly in the miniseries Pacific, where Robert Leckie's in his room staring out the window across to the neighbor at Vero, when the um, army infantry, you know, army soldier comes in his classy uniform to take her out on date, and Robert Leckie's mom walks in the room and startles him, and he like jumps back, and you know he says, "Are you a Jap?" She said, "Huh?" He's like, "You sure sneak up like one?" When you spend that much time doing jungle warfare, especially against an enemy who synonymous for doing nighttime bonsai raids and you know you you get back in your home country and you're dealing with what you just went through and the horrible god-awful things you saw and then you out drink and forget about it and you black out the last thing you want is a horrible incident like that to happen because you walk in in a dark alley and you just see the silhouette of a japanese-american face and you just black out and not know what the hell's going on yeah yeah and be sure to join us on the next episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast when we are joined by World War II veteran Jake Lawson. There were three of those
3: LSTs, and uh, I happened to be in the left left one. Four hundred of us there. There was there was another one of these landing ship tanks t- to the right of us. Uh, about uh, I was very poor at judging distance. In, in the water, I would say half a mile away and then there was a third one uh, another half mile farther on and behind us there were groups of landing ship tanks and I think there was 11 in all when we got close to Slapton Sands two German E-boats intercepted us and they torpedoed the, the two landing ships on my right and they shot the heck out of the of the components that were taken care of the one that I was in. in fact they shot so much of the stuff that they, they cut off our air and we were diesel gas. 400 of us lay in there on the floor vomiting and uh, trying to breathe through wet handkerchiefs. And uh, I I don't know how we made it back to Plymouth, England. We we, we got down there and uh, we stumbled out of there and there was a full bird colonel that got us to attention. And uh, he said... Uh, under penalty of court martial, you, you cannot talk about this even to your commanding officers.
2: Are you familiar with Martha Gelhorn by any chance?
0: I am not, no.
2: Coming again off this website, talking about uh, little-known stories from D-Day. Martha Gellhorn, the first woman to cover D-Day. When you're a reporter who just got denied access to the world's largest military invasion in history, the only logical thing to, uh, to, uh, to do is to sneak into a hospital ship, lock yourself in a bathroom, and hide while sitting on the toilet. This is precisely what Martha Gellhorn did as the first female reporter to document the events of D-Day. Um, as I said, she disgu- well, she disguised herself as a stretcher bear, waded into the waist-deep water, helped the wounded in the tents that had been set up on the secure beachhead, and wrote about... Wrote about it later in the newspaper, what she saw. Quote, cigarettes had to be lit by hand for those who couldn't use their hands, and it seemed to take hours to pour hot coffee via the spout of the teapot into the mouths just showing through the bandages. She wrote about her D-Day experiences. Now think about that for a second. Here's a female civilian. She hit on a hospital ship. She got a hold of a uniform. I'm sure she had somebody helping her out. She finds her way onto the beachhead. She's going to these tents, and there's these men so severely wounded that their faces are completely wrapped in bandages with nothing showing but their mouth and their nasals from their nose and to provide them with what little comfort they can the best europeans know how is tea time and so you know you're lighting cigarettes for guys to smoke and you're gently pouring tea directly into their mouths because they can't move and you got to do it slow enough so they they don't drown um, you know, from the tea or choke on it. Her primary focus was on the human toll that war takes, particularly on the average soldier and the civilians that carry the obvious hidden. Wo- I'm sorry, the oblivious hidden wounds. In the terms of life, the price fall- The price falls most heavily where it is at least deserves and least noticed on the children. And yet, after uh, confidently proving herself as a reporter, some some downplayed her legacy to her brief marriage to Ernest Ernest Hemingway. She rejected the notion saying, I was a writer before I met him. I've been writing for 45 years since. Why should I be a footnote in someone else's life? Gail Horn would go on to cover the Vietnam War, the Six-Day War in the Middle East, uh, the murders of El Salvador, uh, collateral damage during the invasion of Panama, and so much more during her 60 years of journalism career. Her lens of covering conflict on the fields rather than on the sidelines made the readers feel for the experience. And so, I mean, that's a story I never heard about.
0: Wow. No, me neither. Jeez we... Uh
2: It's just, I don't know. It just sounds so crazy to think of all the effort that people went through. I mean, we've all heard of stories where, you know, you hear these small farm towns where all the boys are getting going and enlisted and the ones who couldn't pass the physicals. You know, we've heard tales of suicide and Great Depression. And it's just so amazing. The amount of effort people went through, both sexes, men and women, regardless of the age, to do what they felt was their part of the war. And she felt her part was to to get the story, even though they told her not to go. So she basically could have gotten a lot of trouble. She probably could have got locked up or something else for sneaking onto a military vessel dressed up as a, let alone getting killed by a stray bullet on the beaches. It's just crazy the amount of effort uh, that generation went through to do their part.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was the key to the success during World War II for sure, man. I mean, that that was a generation that was born into struggle. You know, like you mentioned, the the Great Depression and just that whole era of children growing up then. uh, They had to be tough. They had to be tough, you know, growing up to make it to the age to be able to join, you know, during the greatest war that, you know, Western Hemisphere has ever seen. Um, That's not something that, was trained. You know, that's not something that, that can be taught. That's something that's bred, and and was just, you know, um, that was just who they were. <laughs> you know, so while it's an incredible story, I'm not I'm not surprised at all, honestly, because that's just there's stories like that all through uh, the Second World War, like you said, with with men and women. I mean, um, you know, I think of Audie Murphy. Um, yeah, he had some his exploits with the army, but, you know, he was turned down by the Navy and the Marine Corps because of his height. Uh, but that didn't discourage him. Um, I was fortunate to meet a, uh, in fact, the last surviving Medal of Honor recipient from the Pacific, Herschel Woody Williams, uh, famous for what he did on Iwo Jima with a flamethrower. Um, he initially tried to join the Marines earlier in the war, uh, was not tall enough. And then later on, they, you know, lessened the restrictions to where, you know, they, I guess they dropped it a couple inches, then he could finally join. And I mean, yeah, there's stories upon stories uh, of people that went out of their way to do what they had to do or what they felt had to be done for this country. And it's just so impressive, you know.
2: Excuse me for the long pause, but I, I, as you were talking, I, I had a thought occurred to me and I'm sure it's been brought up before. and But I don't recall ever being participate in a conversation about it. And that is the. I don't know if the perfect storm is the word I'm looking for, but I'm just thinking, you're you're kind of talking about how that generation, how they weren't trained that was bred into them. And you got to think, well, what bred that into them? Well, you had a generation who just came out of the Great Depression. Uh, you had a generation where, you know, here in 2020, where we have 20-year-old, 30-year-old kids living at home with their parents, we can't get our six year olds in a moat of grass. Um, we often forget that, Yes, 16 was young, but back then it was older because the life expectancy back then was 70 ish. That's why Social Security took over at 65 because the government was trying to help you during the last few years of your life. And mm-hmm. so it was very uncommon for people, you know, it happened, but, you know, we didn't have as many people back then living to be 80 and 90s as we do now. And so 40 was middle age for a reason because, you know, your life expectancy, you know, actually probably 30 was more of a middle age. And so when you have a majority of your infantrymen in their early teens, um, a lot of your NCOs were in their mid-20s, everything, everything has kind of moved back a step, which that's not really what I'm talking about really per se. But when I say the perfect storm, I think the outcome and our contribution to the war effort would have been greatly different if they didn't have the years of the Depression making them you know, a tough generation. Because when you're, oh, well, and, and let's not forget the Dust Bowl, too. So you have the Dust Bowl. That that made a huge generation, you know, their parents realizing that the only way you're going to survive is through hard work. Most of the families back then, most of the country made up of farmers. I mean, the you know, we didn't have all the technology and all the job opportunities we have now. Back then, most of the families still farms. That's where the phrase he when when someone died in combat, the reason you would hear in the movies, "Oh, he bought the farm," is, you know, you kind of come to grips with your m- mortality in war. And and the phrase "He bought the farm" was well, World War II was the well at the end of World War One, but World War II was one of the first times that um, the United States kind of led the way when it came to. Um, uh, what? Life insurance. Yeah, life insurance benefits. I was going to say, will, but yeah, life insurance benefits. And so when you hear right. that phrase, he bought the farm, that's because most of those soldiers were farm boys. And so when they died, it was common for their family to take that life insurance money and finally buy the farm from the bank so they didn't have to worry about foreclosures anymore. And so you had the Dust Bowl. That made their parents hard. And then they grew up during the Depression. That made them hard. And so you have two generations of people, not to mention their grandparents, fought in World War One, But you got all these generations thinking, knowing what it's like or what is required of you to survive just in daily life. And so when you, you have these group of people who from generation to generation, because of the the struggles, you know, of going on at that time, they made them a more tough, durable, rugged person who was more than willing and capable and able of doing hard jobs, whether it was farming or working in mines and this and that. And so they weren't a generation that would back away from something just because it was hard. And then obviously we had great pride because yes, it was 76 years ago from us, but the founding of their country was a, you know, that was 70 years closer to them than it was to us now. And in the grand scheme of things on the big timeline of life, the founding of this country really was not that long ago. If you think about it.
0: Oh, absolutely. And you know, one thing you brought up that uh, really, we need to think about, you talked about the life expectancy, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I don't know, for somebody born in the 20s, I don't know statistically exactly what their life expectancy was. But you're probably pretty close, uh, you know, the 70, 75, 80, somewhere in there. So let's be thankful. And how many World War II veterans that we have alive right now mm-hmm. that have beaten that statistic? <laughs> Whatever that statistic is, I guarantee it's not what age they are now you know, they, they're they in their early mid 90s and, and over 100. So, I mean, they are really a generation of survivors. And, you know, I, I've heard from multiple World War II veterans that I've talked to, they've said the exact same thing. Oh, I'm not the greatest generation. My parents were. And I think that's interesting to think about, too, because like you said, um, you know, they're, maybe their dad was in the trenches in World War One and, you know, it dealt with what they had to deal with. And Interesting to think, it, who we call the greatest generation, our World War II veterans, if they consider their parents the greatest generation, then where does it really cut off? And how does that become relevant to today? I know uh, we think there's a lot of turmoil today and everything that this country dealing with and what the world has to deal with because it just keeps getting so much smaller. But we're not fighting a world war. No. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? So – maybe our generations are prepared for what the the world is throwing at us right now and the way that we are dealing with it it you know just trying to put things in perspective for people um you know i'm not saying that's that's right or wrong that's just simply simply my opinion but what we go through right now maybe other generations would not be able to handle what we're going through right now and it would be a whole lot worse so it's thing
2: to think about. Oh, absolutely. And two things. Um, I, I was talking about how the founding of the country wasn't that long ago. And for you younger audience, um, here's how you can kind of wrap your mind around it. How old was your grandfather before he passed away or his grandmother? My grandfather was, was in his 80s. My grandmother was in his 90s. Okay, so let's back that 90 years out. Life expectancy was shorter, but let's say my grandmother, who lived to be 90, let's say her mom lived to be 60. Back that generation out. You go two more of those generations, and then there's your relatives tromping around this country unless they imported later in life right around the time of the founding. If you actually look at it that way, say, well, it's, you know, 1776, if you start, you know, when your when your grandfather was born in 1921 <laughs> – you know, you, you go back to his father and his grandfather, you realize, holy hell, it really wasn't that long ago. And the fact that we've been able to do what we were able to accomplish in such a short period of time. And I often joke around, you know, why does America get such a bad rap? Same reason the Yankees do. You you always win and people start hating you, and, <laughs> you know, and, and sadly, I came up with this metaphor a few years ago. Um, you start seeing more and more, it's real bad now, but a few years ago when, when the the tide started to turn where you start seeing all these celebrities and all these people kind of bad in America. It's like, why are they bad in America? Why do we need to change things? If you're, if you want, if your wife won the cookie baking, the world cookie baking competition for the last 200 years, why would you change a recipe just to make the people who are mad that you win every year? Yeah. You don't change the recipe. You tweak it. You find the things that don't work and make it better. But if that recipe is working for you, don't change it just to make the people who are losing every year like you a little bit better. Don't change the lineup on the Yankees. I'm not and I'm not even a Yankees fan, but, you know, for a long time they won every year. And everybody hate the Yankees. Why? Because they won every year. It's, it's the same thing. But then and back to what you're we were saying about life expectancy and you're saying you don't know what it was. Well, you really don't have to know what it was to know that. Keep in mind back then, it was very common for girls to get married off at the age of 12, 13 here in 2020. We think that's insane. Yeah. But when your life expectancy is 50, 60, 70, and you naturally, the the girl naturally matures and gets to the childbearing ages at 12, 13, that's nature, you know, at that time with the whole scale of life expectancy being slid back 10, 20 years, you know, George Washington, what, he led his first troops at the age of 16, I believe it was? Yeah. <laughs> think of that for a second. For those who have 16, 17 year old boys at home, you asked to mow the grass; they wanted to do it without giving you a grief. All did was leading troops at sixteen, because once again, sixteen was a lot older than it is now. And so, right,
0: and, it, and like you said, it really wasn't that far, in it wasn't that you know that distant in the past. Uh-huh. Because I can mean, tell you personally, uh, my grandmother was fifteen when she got pregnant with my dad. No, so that's two generations. But isn't it funny
2: how isn't it funny how every generation likes to think that the their uh, their the the next generation has changed? And how many of you have heard this? Oh, these girls are growing up so quick now. It's the hormones they put in the food. No, it's not. <laughs> back in the seventeen hundreds, girls were getting married off at twelve, eleven. They were having kids back then. McDonald's didn't exist back then. Preservatives didn't exist back then. You just think that kids are maturing faster now because you're getting older and you're looking at it through a different eye. When you look biologically at the fact that, you know, like you said, getting married at 15, having kids at 13, back in you know 1921, back in 1890, whatever. The the maturity age, yes, mentally, we're kind of going backwards, but physically and the ability to produce children. It hasn't really changed. It's been around 12, 13 for the longest time. So it has nothing to do with preservatives and kids maturing and all the drugs and all the nonsense you hear people say when they look at their daughter. It's just like, no, you just don't want to look at her that way. Not that I'm saying you should. It's just we're kind of going off tangent. But the whole thing of life expectancy <laughs> and how it's funny how every generation looks at the younger generation as, all oh, they've changed. And truth be told, no, it's just as you get older, your views change and and you got to deal with it.
0: Yeah, and um, I know we probably gotta gotta get close to signing off here, but I did want to say one thing too, you know, about perspective and and um, you know and, and, and keeping keeping World War II at the forefront, or at least we're trying to. Um, but I just want I want our listeners to chew on this. Um, you know, when we talk about some of the things that we're dealing with today, and, and I think we're very similar. I mean, again, we're talking about a world war, you know, so we think things are bad right now. We are not involved in a world war and we're, you know, we're not involved with trying to be two superpowers that statistically and logistically should be kicking our butt on the battlefield. And I'm talking about the empire of Japan and of course, Germany in the 1940s, there there was no way that we should have stood a chance to defeat both of them, let alone both of them simultaneously on, on opposite sides of planet earth. But putting this into perspective today, uh, and I'm not saying there's a lot of bad stuff going on because I, I realize there is. You know, I, I know I, I don't live in a bubble, but if the news or your any source of information told you, showed you a picture or showed you a video or told you that it's raining at a particular place in America and every day they highlight somewhere in America where it's raining, sooner or later, regardless of what's happening outside your window, you're going to think it rains every day in America.
2: And not only that, but you're going to head down to Home Depot to start buying lumber because it's imperative that you start building your ark because clearly it's exactly. going to flood. And the flood so, waters are coming.
0: Right, exactly. And it's just about perspective. The more you get hit with that 1% of what's really going on, uh, and you, you just tend to forget about the other 99%. So, folks, uh, do everybody a favor. Look outside. and
2: Go outside. Don't just look. Go. <laughs> go yeah, outside. Go, enjoy go, the sun. Go snow.
0: outside. Because let me tell you, the sunset has not changed. There's still a billion stars in the sky. At least there are here in Texas. I can't say that for everywhere. But (laughs) there's a billion stars in the sky at night in Texas. And, you know, life is good. And I'm pretty sure that anybody, and this doesn't have to deal with veterans or combat veterans, anybody who's ever been close to death or had any kind of traumatic experience will know what I'm talking about, that there is nothing sweeter than the breath of life. And we should just never take that for granted because... While you and I and some of our listeners have this really strong, close connection with those who served in World War II, that we really feel that they're the ones who provided this for us. Let's not forget it, and let's not take it for granted. It's really not that bad, guys. It's really not.
2: And you know, And that's so, an all-more reason why to keep history alive. And before we sign off, just to put a fine point on what you're saying, I was driving around with my 13-year-old daughter a week and a half ago. And, uh, she comes in the room and sees us watching the news and, you know, and on Facebook and here's what's going on with the marches and the protests and all that stuff and uh, the cop killings and all that. And we're driving on the street and she says, I really wish I lived in a time where people weren't so cruel. And I had to say, I had to say to her, yes, baby, things are bad right now, but they are a lot better than they were. We've come a long way. We still have, we still have progress to be made, but things have come a long way. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, sweetheart, a short 76 years ago, people were being killed based on nothing more than the religion they were born into or practice or their sexual preferences or if they were a gypsy or if they were born with special needs. There was an entire group of people out there who were doing atrocious, horrible things to people simply based on ideology. And we're not talking hundreds of people. We're not talking thousands of people. Millions of people were killed. Based on that,
0: yeah, I mean, crack a history book. Show me where people weren't cruel to other people. I'd like to. I'd like to know when yeah. that time existed. I really would. Um, and that's you know, they're, they weren't volunteers that built the pyramids. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, or the or the transcontinental railroad, for that matter. <laughs> Irish right. or, or Irish or Chinese
0: yeah so you know life like anything that's what you make of it it really is so um but we digress our greatest generation is our greatest generation uh regardless if they think it's their parents or not to you and i and I think a lot of our listeners they are our greatest generation they are our heroes they are what we do this for that they are why this podcast exists why we reenact why we spend umpteen thousand dollars on ebay buying gear from the period They are why we do it, and and, uh, we will never forget that.
2: And real quick, for you reenactors out there, remember, focus on your impression. Always try to improve it. Um, As some of you all know, I'm down like 30 pounds, and as I'm looking at some of my uniforms, we're getting baggier than they should be. But uh, just recently, got very lucky, found somebody who, unfortunately for him, had gained some weight. He can no longer wear an M1 jacket. So I got a slightly used M1 jacket for like next to nothing. I'm like, I'll be honest with you guys, like 30 bucks, But it actually fits me the way that an M1 jacket should because through the weight loss, all the ones I have are like two sizes too big for me. And so when I look at the photos, they look like they're draping off of me. And it just doesn't quite look right. And so kind of what you were saying, you know, we spend money to work on our impressions. And one of the things I had on my list before we go, what is your white whale? What's the white whale in your collection? What's the one thing you've been trying to get? Do you have one, Jeff?
0: You mean besides my own personal D seventeen?
2: Yeah. <laughs> and the hangar to park it in. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Oh man. I that's a good question because right now I am really just ate up on I'd love to own my own World War II era Jeep. I really I I really would love to be able to be mobile with my impression. Um and, and I don't have any one specific impression. I mean I like to I like to be um pretty versatile that way, you know, depending on i'm at an air show you know i like to be air corps um i'll do marines um i will do marines when the time is right uh but as a former soldier um i i prefer to, to stick with the army although i've had former marines come tell me, like man you had to have been marine i can't believe you weren't a marine you're like more marine than me <laughs> you know well, then maybe i'm doing something right but um i don't have any one particular item i don't i don't have that right now for me no
2: well as an m1 helmet collector um, the one thing I've been looking for, trying to get a hold of an affordable one of, and I finally got my white whale, which is a front seam fixed bale helmet. And so I just picked one up. That thing has like so many different coats of paint on it. I think I might have to take <laughs> it to an auto body shop and have it media blasted. Um, it's got yeah. OD green paint on it, but the where it's flaking away, you can see at some point. I don't know. i was talking to a buddy of mine who served in the, in the army and the Navy. Um, uh, but there's, there's a layer of yellow paint on it. And he thinks maybe it was used out somebody uh, working in the uh, the pits on the range or somewhere else on a base. At some point, this helmet was painted yellow, and then it was painted green again. But there's just so much. Yeah, and you can tell it's painted with a paintbrush. It wasn't airbrushed. And so there's just big okay. globs of OD green paint running down the sides and yellow outlines. So I may have to break down and take it to an auto body part and have them uh, media blast it with some walnut so I can repaint it. But, yeah, I finally got me a front seam fixed bail helmet. Um, so now, and as we said last week, I got a front seam D-bell helmet, which had already been restored for Airborne. And so finally, I think um, my M1 collection is finally settled down. But uh, yeah, email us info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Let us know what your white whale of your collection is. Do you want a Jeep? Do you want a tank? Do you want a B-17? Maybe you want a Mitchell. <laughs> Let us know what your white whale is and if you actually have been able to acquire one. I would love to have a Jeep as well. Um, buddy of mine who um, we talk about a lot on this podcast named Jerry Oxley. He got one a while back. Now he just needs to get a trailer so we can take it to future events. But anyhow, thank you guys for tuning in. I know this episode was a little all over the place, but hey, you know, that's the luxury we have now with having a co-host. Um, you know, we can kind of, go all over the place but enjoy it and get back to the topic at hand but thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast thank you to all the new listeners and uh thank you for jeff copsetter for all you're doing um big news head over to wtsp world war ii and we're gonna have die cut stickers available i just sent some out to jeff he has some out there in texas what do you think of them fella
0: man i love those stickers i really do i love them
2: how do you like your uh, k ration t-shirt fella
3: Oh
0: man. So I got to get a good picture of me wearing it and, and I'd love to post it on our, on our Facebook page. Cause yeah, man, I love it. It's comfortable. It fit me perfect. Um, yeah, I, I should be like the, what's the scuttlebutt of t-shirt model.
2: Now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I got one too, but, uh, our vendor messed up and sent me a men's small. So <laughs> I was going to do the fat guy in a little shirt, but you know, what I think I might do. Um, I think I might reach out to, uh, some of the ladies who've been on the podcast in the past, cause I don't know how many um, of our guests can wear a men's small. That's a dude, um, uh, maybe Ted. Um, but yeah, I might, instead of trying to return this, I'll probably just buy me another one and then pass this along to either a female who can fit into a men's small shirt, which I'm sure all of them can, or, uh, maybe give to somebody's kid or something. Anyhow, I got a, uh, K-Ration white shirt here. It's men's small. We'll figure out what to do with that, if you guys have any ideas for that. Emails. We want to start getting uh, in communication with you guys, and once we get Jeff set up with a studio, we're going to start taking phone calls during the show as well. We want to get more interaction with you guys, but thank you guys so much. Jeff, thank you, sir, and we will talk to you all again soon, and hopefully... On the next podcast, we will have story time with Papa Jake, the World War II veteran that you may be following on TikTok. Thank you guys so much. Head over to wtspworldwar2.com to find all all of our links and sign up for that YouTube channel. I got some uh, interesting stuff coming out on YouTube this week. I got some new World War II stuff. Uh, Just a little hint. You ever wonder what the extra holes on your cots for? I got that answer coming up here in probably a few days on our YouTube channel. I was interested in actually I stumbled across the item and I picked it up on eBay and now I can show you in great detail what those holes in your cot are for. Thank you, Jeff. And we'll talk to you all soon. Awesome. All right. Love you guys.
3: This has been a digital 410 production. <laughs>